Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. Ago. Honey, I get a lot of people down here. Can you be more specific? You, or presumably your office, called me back in late September and told me to come down here regarding the previous season of Telehell. Oh, now I know who you are. Go right in. The big guy's been expecting you. Thank you. Say, say I've, uh, I've never met this guy before. Is he everything he says he is? Nah, that fire and brimstone stuff was Old Testament. Fortunately, he adjusts with the times. So don't be surprised about how easygoing he can be. Good luck, honey. wanted to see me, sir. Ah, you must be the narrator I've been hearing about. Please have a seat. Took you long enough to get here, didn't it? Yeah, well, I, I do work at the top floor in limbo, sir. Walking from point A to point B takes about 28 days by foot. Wait, you walked here? Why don't you jump off the ledge of the circle like everybody else does? Wait, that was an option? I didn't have to walk and practically ruin my calves just to get here? Okay, here's a pro tip for you before we start. You're gonna be here for all of eternity, and you're practically immortal now. Taking a flying leap off the circle to get here won't cause you any more bodily harm than you've already managed to achieve in arriving in hell. Granted, you'll feel the same pain as about several dozen broken bones upon impact and an astronomical amount of pain, but at least you can't die twice, and it would have saved you about four weeks worth of walking. Tell me you're gonna walk the same way back. You don't have an elevator here. I know, but we still have the lava geyser. Granted, boiling lava hurts like a bitch the first few times, but at least it's convenient. And it helps clean out the pores. Were you not told anything about this in your orientation manual? I'll be honest, I, I was kind of thrown into this position pretty quickly. I haven't had time to look at it yet. Well, please do. If there's anything I don't like, it's when people don't know the rules. I may be pure evil, but I keep a tight ship around here. Now then, enough small talk. Let me pull up your file. Okay, then. Your mortal name was Justin Hart. And you're here in hell because you broke the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. But I love my parents. Oh, sorry. There seems to be some dirt on here. Ah, there we go. That five was actually an eight. Common mistake. 
Okay, the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. In your last moments on Earth, you tried to hook up an illegal cable box you found at a yard sale. While trying to steal cable in order to watch a pay-per-view fight, an electrical charge zapped you, and as you passed out, your head hit your stereo cabinet, causing it to bleed profusely. You were the only one in your home when it happened, and nobody discovered you until three days later when your neighbor noticed a foul smell coming from your home. That would be your body of decay. Wow. I honestly don't remember anything after the zap. I thought that would have killed me first before the cabinet. No, no. It was from blunt force trauma. The zap, if anything, was just a mild surprise that knocked you back. Well, I guess that explains the how and part of the why. So... What's with all the bad TV I had to review? Well, like my secretary said, we tend to adjust ourselves at the times. We may still use fire as our main aesthetic, but if we did that for every single sinner that would come in here, we'd bore ourselves back to life. So, a couple centuries ago, we adopted the philosophy that every sinner's punishment in hell has to fit whatever brought them here in the first place. And since your crime of theft was related to television, the fitting punishment for you would be to sit through the absolute worst that the medium has to offer. And that is what we're here to discuss today. In other words... Correct. This is your telehell. Progress Report of the Damned. So, let's take a look at how you did these past 13 weeks. Give or take the month it took you to walk here. Seriously, you really walked down here? You didn't even take a break? I legitimately thought that was the only way to get here. Seriously, read the manual when you're done here. Now then, your progress. Okay. In your 13 episodes, you managed to get over a thousand downloads and counting. And I've got to say, for a show with no advertising, virtually no following, and coming out of nowhere, that's pretty impressive. Let's see. You managed to have two episodes with over a hundred listeners, one of which only took you three days to do. Very nice. Let's talk about this Dukes of Hazard episode of the Fake Dukes. That one seems to have received the most social response on your Facebook page. Why do you think that is? Surprisingly, the show is still popular to this day. When I set up the episode for streaming, I made sure to tag fans of the show to boost the numbers a little bit. And sure enough, they came out of the woodwork to rip on how lousy Coy and Vance Duke were. The viewing audience didn't really care for the new Dukes either. Or at least, that would be the case eventually. People certainly tuned in to see what the new Dukes would be like, and the show handily won its time slot like it always did. But then, word of mouth started taking place. After a few weeks, the show's ratings started to slip, then slide, then fall, until by December of 1982, they eventually bombed out. What was once a top 10 rated hit show suddenly dipped below 50th place out of a possible 77 shows that year and was in danger of being canceled. The audience made it very clear that while these replacement actors were simply okay, they were certainly no match for the originals and it would take a miracle for the residents of Hazard County to live to see another day. And as luck would have it, a silver lining emerged by the mid-season of 1983. As John Schneider, Tom Mopat, and Warner Brothers all came to an undisclosed agreement regarding the dispute, both parties' lawsuits would be dropped, and Bo and Luke would write again. I see. Now what about your most recent episode about this game show with the lie detector? 
This one seems to be your most listened to show of the season. And quite honestly, I'm jealous I didn't come up with the concept myself. Again, I targeted the show to a specific interest, and as much as people like the Dukes, they really love game shows and reality TV. And in this case, they also happen to love schadenfreude that's attached to it. This contestant, who, again, we're not going to identify by name, was involved in a polygamous family. And for pretty much the entire episode, the questions were pretty much about that aspect of her life in no uncertain terms. Without the episode being available in full, I can only imagine what the first 20 questions are. For now, though, this moment right here makes television history, and for all the wrong reasons. Do you believe your father, as an adult, has ever had sexual relations with a minor? Oh. Oh. Oh, God. Oh. Excuse me. I think I got punched in the jejunum. Oh, God damn it. Oh, God. Ugh. I'm okay. <clears throat> I'm okay. In a way, I'm kind of glad this moment never made it to network television. It gives me hope that somewhere in the nether recesses of what passes as a soul for a network TV executive, there's still some shred of dignity to be had. Of course, I'm watching this online, so at this point, to hell with dignity! You say people love to talk about game shows? Then how come your episode about Jackie Gleason's failed game show hasn't hit the same numbers as the moment of truth? Well, to be fair, that was our first episode. We didn't exactly have our act together yet. That and the show aired in the 1960s, as opposed to Moment of Truth airing just a decade ago, so maybe one might have been a little fresher in the memory than the others. You already heard the rules of the game, but that was in its basic form. The final product of the rules would be explained by Gleason. We roll out some pictures. The panelists put their heads into holes that have been cut into the pictures. They try to guess what the content of the picture is or what they portray in the picture. Now, if they should guess a picture, we send 100 care packages in their name. If they should miss a picture, we send 100 care packages in my name. <laughs> so with this game, everybody wins, nobody loses. And right off the top, we have the show's biggest flaws explained to an audience of millions watching. First and foremost, there are no civilian contestants involved. Sure, the idea of seeing famous people playing a game together might have been enough of a reason to tune in, but usually, celebrities play with civilians so that they can help them win the prizes. Even more so, there have been all celebrity game shows where stars play the game and win prizes for contestants watching at home by random drawing. Picture didn't see it that way, and it may have cost them in viewer interest. Second, as noble as it was for the so-called prize of the show to be several hundred care packages being donated in the star's name, depending on who got the puzzle right or wrong, it still sort of reeked of being a cheap, albeit tax-deductible, budget saver. 
Again, why not have the stars play for some pre-selected audience member or even home viewers? And for that matter, why not have higher stakes in store? This is airing on network television in prime time. Even What's My Line could afford to give upwards of $50 to its participants. Hmm. Well, since that was your first show, I suppose we can allow for some breathing room there. Let's talk about the two Faulty Towers ripoffs. What do you think Payne did better than Amanda's? Well, again, that sort of chalks things up to how early in the season that was. I didn't use targeted demographics on Amanda's, but I did use it on Payne, so that's certainly the major reason why one did better than the other. But it also might have been another case where one show was more recent than the other, so perhaps there might have been a little more recognizability in one of the two. Both shows are obvious candidates for sharing the fraud circle. In spite of their best efforts, they still took on the task of trying to recreate something that not only already existed, but didn't need to be perfected in the first place. The original Faulty aired only 12 episodes, and it was perfect. Amanda's in Pain aired less than that, while giving us something that we already saw before, and the result was less than underwhelming. Which also brings up the point that despite its short run, Faulty still ran late night or during pledge drives on most PBS stations at that time, thus leading to potential overexposure when the inferior versions aired. That means both shows also get to check in to our gluttony circle. Because after all, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. As for how they differ, as much as we agree that Payne was the better show, it was also the better cash grab, especially for John Cleese, who was more than eager to see his vision take on another life. This causes Payne to take on the extra amenity of the greed circle. All Cleese had to do was say that the producers had his blessing and he could go along his merry way. But perhaps because of the failure of Amanda's, Cleese may have felt the need to overdo it on the course correction, thus leading him to being more involved than he probably should have been. Then again, the original show was his idea, and you know how protective creative people can be sometimes. On the flip side, maybe Payne had to be good by comparison because the ripoff before that was the bigger shock to the system. Amanda's took so much from the source material without asking for it that it almost felt like their faulty faulty was more of the blatant ripoff, meaning that room service is ready to bring Amanda's a glass of freshly squeezed heresy. Even if the audience watching were living under a rock, they knew an imposter when they saw it. And again, because of just how frequently the reruns of the original were running on PBS, even back then, they weren't too eager to spot a wolf in B. Arthur's clothing. I see. Now, let's talk about Super Train. You put in a lot of effort on that one, even going so far as to make up a character. Well, with that, I figured that this was the fourth episode, and I didn't want it to be just me talking to myself the entire time, so I came up with a German scientist who tried to explain the logistics of being able to walk on a moving train at a completely unheard of speed, and I also thought it added some educational value to the program. Just then, a windswept Lawrence finds his way to the top of the train, with evil Mike Post tailing him and shooting him while the train is in motion? Uh, hang on, let me see if I can catch the doctor before he leaves. Hey, Doctor, uh, before you go, there was one other scene we forgot. Uh, the bad guy is chasing Steve Lawrence on the train and shooting at him with a gun at the same 200-mile-an-hour speed. Now, certainly that, too, defies the laws of physics, right? Yeah, yeah, that's sort of a dicey area, especially at 200 miles an hour. 
It would be like aiming into an F5 tornado. You see, air resistance scales as velocity cube, so a headwind will slow down the bullet more than steel air. The effect is too small to have any practical impact. However, shooting across the wind is definitely a problem. For example, the ballistic chart for a common target load includes a 10 mile an hour crosswind pushing the bullet 3.5 inches off target at 200 yards and 7.4 inches off the target at 300 yards. Allowing for wind drift is a critical skill for long-range rifle shooting. Trying to shoot while moving at 200 miles per hour means the guy attacking Steve Lawrence is practically wasting his ammo in this case. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Thanks for clearing that up. Uh, did you find Debbie? Yeah, they told me she relocated to the limbo circle. I'll take it from there, don't worry. Okay, very well. Thank you, Doc. Nice guy. It's a shame, though, that he was forced to work with Hitler against his will. Anyway. <sighs> Continuing. And then he did some weeks of shows that strayed a little from the format. One was a countdown list, and the other was... an interview with Jimmy Walker from Good Times? How the here did you manage that? Uh, permission to speak out of character and break the fourth wall, sir? Proceed. Thank you. See, I caught a virus while flying to Florida to visit some relatives for various birthdays back in August. I started getting sick on the plane. The illness continued once I got back, and it pretty much put me out of commission for about three weeks. But I knew that we were just starting out, so I didn't want to take a break in between, even if I was being sick. Now, knowing that I was about to travel, I wanted to have an episode in the can, so that's where the countdown of things that we wouldn't review came in. So, let's recap. Number six, we won't cover anything local because podcast listeners are an international audience. Number five, we won't do guilty pleasures because even bad things can be good sometimes. Number four, we won't do anything current or recent unless the show has been off the air for at least three years' time. Number three, we won't review a show that we have no access to or are unable to find. Number two, we won't do any big screen adaptations of TV shows, unless somebody wants to Netflix and chill with us and have that be a part of a crossover episode, whether it be for our show or for theirs. And number one, we will not exploit the deaths of anybody, because that's another subject for a completely different genre of show altogether. That, and we would probably never be able to afford the therapy bills if we had to. Now, as for Jimmy Walker, this was actually archive footage that I had lying around. See, for many years, I, I used to work in radio, and he was the only famous person I ever interviewed. Granted, it was really more of a shoot-the-breeze kind of situation, but, you know, it's, it's a show about television, and him being a TV star, I thought that was worth sharing. I'm looking here, Jessica Albert had a kid. That's yeah. not... I, I heard about that, Boy, yeah. Is that Nick Cannon that I'm a little jealous of? Oh, <laughs> don't get me started, man. Don't get me started. How did that happen? That's what I want to know. Uh, that, that's what I'm waiting for. Yippee ki yay ki yo. <laughs> Even if he's only married to her for another like month or so, he still got there. That dog that he is. Man, Nick Cannon in the house. Maybe he went to Vegas recently and got a little bit of luck. <laughs> Man, that is great. Yeah. To the factory and got everything done, 
and she looks great. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Carrie, maybe I can hang around because that relationship's going to be over shortly anyway. <laughs> hey, you never know. You never take an old guy like me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You never know in Hollywood. A reminder that this interview is from 2008. But then again, to be fair, I think a lot of people saw this coming too. So, moving on. See, everybody's got rule number ones in their life, but I think the biggest rule number one to have is the one that the Boy Scouts pretty much came up with. You gotta be prepared. So, I just wanted to be prepared in case something happened during production. Now then, uh, permission to go back into character. Indeed. Now then, let's talk about the Minnesotes. First of all, why did you feel they were necessary to add to the program? Well, considering this was our first season, we were trying to find our rhythm. We weren't 100% sure if we wanted to do shows every week, or every other week, or even monthly, so we found a happy medium. Full-length episodes on one week, and minisodes in between weeks, basically. Hmm, yes. And I see that most of your minisodes have to do with bad TV commercials. Yes, we wanted to be sure to cover as much of TV history as we possibly could, even if it meant digging at the in-between stuff as well. Yes, and I see you've gone after the likes of Burger King, Domino's Pizza, Reebok, and a makeup company that barely still exists. Oh, God, yes. They put on some horrendously bad spots at the time that... Oh! Are you fucked in the head? The whole point of doing a podcast is to seek out every last dollar from advertisers and people who listen to you. If you badmouth someone who could be a sponsor, kiss your chances of having a profitable show goodbye. Do you even have a crowdfunding page? Well, now, in our defense, we've only been on for three months. Our audience hasn't exactly grown to that size yet. Silence! I've heard shows with lower ratings pulling advertisers. I swear my counterpart in heaven that there have been podcast episodes devoted to Dryerland that can pull in a dollar or two. What's your excuse? Again, we're a relatively new show. You gotta give us time to grow an audience. Nothing ever happens overnight. Kevin Smith didn't get big numbers right away. Dax Shepard didn't get a big number right away. Not even Joe Rogan had the best of starts, and they're all famous people. I'm just an underling in the underworld trying to figure this shit out. Which brings me to my next question. When were you planning on returning for your next season? Uh, January of 2020? What? Do you realize that not only have you let a month go by without putting on a new episode, but now we have to wait another three months to do it? You better have a good reason why. Or else. Permission to speak out of character again. Oh, fine. This is the last time you can do that here today. <sighs> Thank you. First of all, this little meeting that you and I are having right now, this technically does count as an episode. And we do plan on doing some more check-ins throughout the fall. Maybe even hold an AMA on our Twitter page, at Telehell Podcast, that we can turn into a future episode. And secondly, I still work in radio. 
and usually in the radio business, fall and early winter is considered to be one of the busiest times of the year, and that means putting together stuff for the football season, for baseball playoffs, for the start of basketball and hockey, and, and let's not forget about the holiday season and all that shopping people have to do. I mean, if I were to do that and put together a podcast at the same time, I'd lose my damn mind. That's why I'm pacing myself. I mean, once the holidays end, then I can focus on this again. I know the show's gaining an audience, but I gotta put my priorities first. If that's okay. Back to character now. I don't agree 100% with what you say. Because what's the point of hell if we're not torturing you 24-7? But because you insist on starting well ahead into the future, it will be my tactile pleasure to set up your schedule and your assignments. Is there anything else you would like to add before we continue? Not at all, your underworldliness. Very well. I'm now going to take the info you gave me and set up your next workload. Episodes from early January to late May of 2020. We'll begin the season by doing eight full-length shows in a row from January 5th to February 23rd. Afterwards, the schedule will then be bi-weekly for the months of March and April, and then we close things out in the month of May with five more shows in a row. Altogether, this will mean a total of 17 episodes for the season. There will be no mini-sodes, because we don't want you pissing off potential future advertisers. Now... The following part of your workload is mandatory. Based on the schedule and the popularity you had with some of your episodes, I've assigned for you two episodes surrounding football, one about the Oscars, and one in the proximity of Valentine's Day. So you better rip into those hard. You've also managed to invoke a lot of lightning in your previous episodes by mentioning certain TV programs that could be considered sin-worthy. And he was expecting a child with his then-new wife, actress Terry Copley, future star of the short-lived sitcom We've Got It Made. Oh, great. Another item to add to the to-do pile. Duly noted, the creator of Amanda's, Elliot Scheinman, has continued to have great success in television. Being a writer and producer for such hits as Home Improvement, as well as winning an Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series while working for the first season of The Cosby Show. Huh. That's strange. Anyway... The writing team of Judd Hillett and John Peasley would continue to write for various TV shows, most notably, according to Jim. Huh. Two of those in one day. Good to know. What could possibly be so uncomfortable that the network once known for airing a show called Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire would actually go out of its way to warn viewers that they're about to watch something that may not exactly be kosher? For every I Love Lucy... My Love Adam Meaty Mac! There's a My Mother the Car. <laughs> For every Brady Bunch... Hey, you guys. Oh, there's an unwatchable variety hour to follow it up. Well, the kids are going to be singing and dancing disco songs, and they didn't figure they'd have enough energy for the introduction, too. So we've included them in your dossier as well. The remaining holes in the schedule are dealer's choice and up to you to fill. So, what happens if I don't cover the subjects by the end of the season? 
then I will see to it personally that whatever remains of your soul will burn so hot that it will make a nuclear bomb look like air conditioning. However, I may be the Prince of Darkness, but I am also a being of my word, which is why I'm now going to read this God and Court Order Statement of Fair Play. <laughs> Successful completion of tasks will result in promotion to a new circle of hell, wherein the damned soul in question will receive an upgrade in satanic powers, as well as a 10% discount at the Hell Gift Shop. The Hell Gift Shop, giving you a devil of a deal since time began, open 24 hours a day, se habla everything. Discount becomes substantially larger, up to 80% off with every progressive circle. So, basically... You'll become more like me every time you do your job. But not too much, because there's only one of me. Everybody else is a pale imitation. Now then, any other questions before we wrap things up? Well, uh, there is this one question, and, and this seems very much like a long shot, but has anybody ever gotten out of here? Like, has anybody ever successfully escaped from hell? <laughs> I take that as a no? If I had a nickel for every time somebody asked me that... <laughs> oh, they've tried. But every time they do, their soul gets erased from existence. <laughs> oh. Thanks for that. I need the laugh today. I think I caused a flood in Botswana with that one. But in all seriousness, people have tried. In fact, to make sure that they never leave, I personally give each damn soul one impossible task upon entry. That's part of the statement of fair play. If they could do the assignment, then it proves something about determination or some bullshit like that. Either way, nobody here has ever completed their impossible task in all of eternity. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Not even with you. Okay, so what's my impossible task? How many times do I gotta tell you? Read your manual. Otherwise, I think you've got a good thing going here. Just keep ripping into bad TV and you'll be fine. In the meantime, you've got some work to do. As well as geyser to catch. Later. Whoa! Forget to jump off the ledge the next time you need to see me. Seriously, you're gonna need the leg strength around here. <laughs> uh, if there's anything I enjoy more than the other world, it's hazing the new blood. <laughs> oh. Whoa. Ellie has a point about it being quick, but man, these blisters. Okay, I better get to work. We've got a few months to prep some things. But first, let me see this manual. God, this is heavy. There we go. Let's see. Impossible task, impossible task. Okay, promotions are achievement and task-based. The number of downloads you get during your run will be put into consideration, yada, yada, yada. Failure to complete tasks will mean complete obliteration from existence. Uh-huh. Ah, impossible tasks. 
To locate your impossible task, locate the red envelope in the back of the manual that says your impossible task. Oh, it's right here. Okay, that was easy. Let's see. To the occupant of this space, welcome to hell. If you feel that you've had enough of it around here, you are welcome to leave as soon as you complete this one impossible task that was customized for you and the sin that brought you here. Because of just how unlikely it is that you complete this task, there is no time limit to do so unless otherwise directed by the powers that be. To see what your task is, consult the blue index card enclosed. Okay. Okay. My impossible task is to find the one TV show or TV moment that manages to successfully mark off all nine circles of hell. Huh. In order for the circles to count in this case, you have to have substantial proof at your disposal. When you have accomplished the task, you will know. Good luck, you're gonna need it. And please enjoy this discount to Hell's Gift Shop. Okay, a show that checks off all nine circles. How hard can that be? I mean, after all, we have 70 years of TV to sift through, and I've got all of eternity to find it. In the meantime, let me take a look at this assignment chart. Okay, he gave me something football related. Actually, no, he gave me two things that are football related. Something Oscars related, something Valentine's Day related, no problem. And apparently I invoked the names of several shows and got struck by lightning because of it. So I gotta cover them too. And that takes care of at least half of the schedule. Now, what to do about the other 60%? This is gonna take a while, folks. Come back later in November when I got this all figured out. And believe me, I got my work cut out for me, so this could take a couple weeks or so. Don't worry, I'll be here, I'll be waiting. Let's see, I'm thinking maybe this one in March, and this one in April. Oh, I gotta do this one for Mother's Day. <laughs> oh boy, I've been wanting to for a while. And let's see, there's this one here. Gonna start the season possibly with this one. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. The part of the boss was played by Adam Carrizales, and the part of his secretary was played by Joan Bishop. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Telehell is now on Stitcher. Go to Stitcher.com, type in the word Telehell, and catch up on all the shows that we put up so far. And don't forget, we're also still on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course our own website, Telehell.Libsyn.com. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook. 
both at Telehell Podcast. <laughs>